This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and my guest on the show today is Max Elder. Max is a food futurist uh, who carries out research at the Food Futures Lab at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California. Uh, the lab it focuses on innovations with the potential to reinvent our global food system and create the futures people want. They, they're seeking to understand the motivations, the drivers, impacts of food innovation and to help people take a long-term view about the future of food uh, with all the uncertainty that that entails. Um, Max's research at the Institute is all about it's about driving systems level change to create a more healthy, humane and sustainable food future. Uh, Max studied philosophy at Kenyon College in Ohio and then ethics at Oxford University and he's also a fellow at the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics which is uh, an international think tank that pioneers ethical perspectives on animals. Um, and he's passionate about how we might move to a post-animal bioeconomy. Um, so he watches the food, food technology landscape closely to, to find signals pointing to that. Uh, he's speaking to us from California, where it's early in the morning, uh, so that he can catch us here in the UK in the afternoon. So I'm uh, delighted he's made time to do it and that I can say, Max, welcome to Doing Good Through Food. Thanks so much. Gosh, what an intro, Alex. Um, I'm thrilled <laughs> to be here. I like to I like to lay it on thick and uh, say, you know, really explain who we're talking to. <laughs> so, um, in in the we sort of had a you know a bit of email back and forth before the show to kind of set things out. And one of the things you said uh, was about the the institute, the uh, the position of it being ideal for the kind of work that you do, sort of just the, the actual location of it. You described it as a, an epicenter of food innovation. Um, and you've traveled quite a bit, I think, from what I what I can tell. I mean, what is it about Palo Alto that makes it so special? Yeah, that's a great question. Palo Alto is in the heart of Silicon Valley, and a lot of the food innovation that I'm particularly interested in is occurring on the West Coast of the United States. It's also occurring in pockets around the world. A lot's going on in the Netherlands, a lot's going on in Israel, but there are a series of food startups that are really leveraging synthetic biology and new types of food production to take animals out of the supply chain and create really healthy, humane, and sustainable food system. And that's really the type of innovation that I'm particularly passionate about, and that's really occurring around Silicon Valley. Um, the Institute for the Future studies lots of uh, trends and um, lots of future forces that are shaping not only the food system, but the future of healthcare, the future of working and learning, the future of technology, the future of digital intelligence, almost anything that you can think of that you're concerned about in the future, the Institute is researching. So being in Silicon Valley just seems like a perfect vantage point to understand those, those global trends. You said it's, it's sort of... Um... Sort of physically quite close to the sort of ag agricultural heart of America as well, or sort of relatively. So that must be quite, that must lend a sort of, because when you say Palo Alto, sort of from from over here, at least to my mind, you sort of think, you know, food startups and incubators and sort of very, very, you know, technical, technical sort of uh, enterprises. But you're also sort of, you know, close to the heartland of America in, in that sense as well. Is, is, does that give give it something? Absolutely. Yeah, we're very close to a lot of massive agricultural uh, economies and geographies. So we know a lot of local farmers. We have fellows at the Institute who are peach farmers, for example. So we're really interested not only in the technological side of the food system, but also in the, um, in the social side. So we want to understand what labor looks like on farms in the future. We want to understand how food deserts and food swamps are engendered in um, economically disadvantaged uh, geographies and what that means for access to good food, what that means for how to develop equity in a food system. And so being sort of in a, in a land where we are very close to massive uh, agriculture and at the same time very close to really high-tech food innovation is a nice balance to get both sides because a lot of people who really do research on the future focus far too much on the technology and often overlook the social implications. So we, we try really hard to to look at both, but it's not easy. I wanted to jump, to jump straight in uh, to talking about food waste, um, which is, is something on the podcast we've sort of talked quite a bit about with a number of different guests um 
different sort of takes on it. People trying to attack it in different ways or sort of, you know, think about it in, in different ways. Um, uh, I, I read a piece that you'd you'd written. Uh, it was called The Simple Change You Can Make to Stop Wasting Food. And I, it, it was quite it was an interesting angle on it, which I'm sure you know, might not be news to everyone listening. But uh, it's something I don't think we've kind of tackled head on. Essentially, what we eat matters more than where it comes from and what we waste matters more than how much. So I wondered if we might kind of get into that a little bit and kind of unpick it because that might be slightly controversial or kind of surprising to someone hearing that because, you know, we're very used to thinking about, you know, reduced food waste as a just as a sort of concept perhaps on its own. That first part, what we eat matters more than where it comes from. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, let's unpack it. So there was a move in the early 90s uh, of a group of people who really wanted to eat more sustainably. And one of the metrics that they used to determine a sustainable diet was the distance that food traveled from where it was produced to where you purchased it and consumed it. And these are called food miles. And for a while, food miles were a sort of North Star for sustainable eaters. People wanted to reduce food miles. They wanted to eat local. And um, it turns out that when we look at the life cycle analysis of a carbon f- of the carbon footprint of a specific food product, the transportation of that product actually accounts for a really small percentage of the overall impact on the climate. It's around 10, 11, 12 percent. And it varies, of course, depending on the type of food. But it turns out that the way that the food is produced is way more important in terms of the overall sustainability of the product than how far it travels. And so we know, for example, that animal-based products, in particular beef, but all animal-based products, have a higher carbon footprint from the production standpoint than plant-based products. And so food miles turns out to be not a really great metric to steer one's behavior uh, towards a sustainable diet. So how your food is produced is actually much more important than how far it travels. And so it's much more sustainable for you to eat lettuce that's grown in California, but flown across the United States, for example, than to eat a hamburger from a cow that was, uh, that lived and was slaughtered in, in your backyard. So we should really focus much more on the types of food than the food miles that were traveled. So that's the first part of that statement. The second part is when it comes to food waste, I think a lot of the conversations are quite frankly, just wasting time we need to look at the types of food that are being wasted more so than the amount. It's, it's unfortunately very easy to just measure the weight of waste and then say, oh my gosh, we, we're wasting so much food and we need to focus on minimizing food waste. But it turns out that if we want to address food waste for a sustainability um, value, right? If we, if we value our food print and we want to minimize it, um, we can waste all of the salads we want, quite frankly. Uh, But when we waste a hamburger or another animal-based product, it has a much larger impact on the environment. It has a much, in economics terms, there's a multiplier effect because that that product um, had a much uh, heavier carbon footprint. So I think when it comes to these conversations, one of the biggest problems is that we treat all food waste as equal and we just measure its weight and everyone does this all of the major food waste organizations do this the um, governing bodies in the united states that provide for example incentives tax incentives to focus on solutions to food waste for food companies they all look at this metric of weight and it turns out it's just like food miles it's it's a bad metric are you starting to see sort of better metrics come in uh, sort of I imagine that a big part of that might be the sort of just the practical difficulty in doing anything else you know you if you're trying to um you know sort of really get into the detail of what's wasted it, it's sort of difficult enough to get accurate aggregate food waste figures sort of without the breakdown but are, are you starting to see ways or are people suggesting things that sort of that might might make some ground on that Yeah, well, I think that the more interesting and somewhat provocative and radical, per se, approach would be to have a more holistic understanding of waste. So we think of food waste as 
food that is meant for human consumption that somehow is wasted, either often in the production and in the sort of post-consumer sectors of that, of that life cycle. I really want us to step back and to think about waste as a systems problem and look at the food system and say, where is their waste occurring? And it turns out that we waste a lot in animal agriculture. We grow massive amounts of crops to be used as feed that goes into uh, this massive industrialized system to produce cheap meat. And it turns out that we, we lose a lot in that. We waste a lot of calories. We waste um, a lot of water. And so if we step back and look at the system as a whole, I think there's a lot more opportunity for real solutions when we understand basically inputs and outputs and look at, for example, the number of calories that have to go in to a chicken to produce one calorie of, um, of consumer, basically, meat. And it's a wildly inefficient system. I think uh, the World Resources Institute did a study a few years ago and ultimately determined that it was something around nine calories of feed input per one calorie of meat output for a chicken as one of the most efficient forms of food production or efficient uh, animals. And that's 800% waste, right? So we all are concerned about 40, uh, 40% of all of the food in the world is wasted, but 800% of all of our calories are wasted when we're growing animals, when we're growing chickens uh, for, for food. So I think that one really great solution would be to step back and to think more about the system and less about um, sort of post-consumer points of waste to really understand what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to solve for some sustainability issues or are we trying to make ourselves feel better that we're recycling or composting? And I, I'm skeptical about what we're, what we're trying to do with, with food waste in these types of conversations. Looking at it as a sort of at a systems level, how much of an effect does the system, the type of system have on it. So if you're talking about a you know, sort of conventional food production system, is, is that very different from say a local food production system? Does do the do those percentages vary? Is it partly to do with kind of you know commercialization of large scale meat production? Is is that materially different from traditional or, or you know small scale meat production? Or is it is it just a basic problem with meat production? Yeah, that's a great question, Alex. And it's a difficult one to answer because Part of the real tragedy, and this is something that I, I really struggle with, is that when we're really looking at creating a sustainable, healthy, and humane food system, there are some massive trade-offs, especially when it comes to animals. So the ways that we've developed basically an industrialized system to produce cheap meat, those ways, those mechanisms, those processes are actually pretty efficient. Uh, in fact, they are designed to be as efficient as possible. So producing cattle on a feedlot, um, pumping animals full of hormones to have them grow extremely quickly so that they reach their slaughter weight um, over a shorter period of time. These are all approaches that this system has designed. And in, in some sense, it is a, li a little bit more sustainable. Um, it's certainly more sustainable than your grass-fed, uh, long-lived cow that you turn into, um, that you slaughter and, and turn into hamburger uh, in your local sort of farm. So unfortunately, the latter type of system is, is certainly more humane. Um, and so there is this tension between developing a more humane system that gives animals more space provides animals more feed, lets them live for longer. Uh, all of those conditions actually have a, a larger carbon footprint. So to me, there's this tension, and I don't think it's a tension that can be resolved. Um, if we want to produce animals for food and we want to do it as humanely as possible, it's just not sustainable from a, from a carbon perspective. And so my <laughs> to be quite blunt, my perspective is we just need to move beyond it. These are... These are outdated 
forms of food production. And when we look towards a sustainable future, we need to start thinking much more creatively about designing a food system that works. And an animal-based food system just doesn't work in my mind. The, the numbers just simply don't add up. From that, do you, do you say the answer is plant-based food systems that sort of taking meat out of the equation is the only way because there's this sort of I, I think just in the last episode I don't know if you if you heard that or not but my my guest in that interview you know he was saying if if that is if that's where we are and if that's the if that's the solution then then we're in trouble because you know the sort of cultural realities around around sort of you know mass moving to a away from meat into a plant-based system meat consumption meat production being so culturally embedded it's just it would be very slow and difficult if potentially impossible but at least very difficult to to do is is that your take on it as well do you think that you know plant-based diets would be the answer but and are they is that realistic to achieve in a sort of mass scale i'm not sure if there's any single solution to be honest i don't believe in in silver bullets or panaceas so i i do think that we definitely need to take a portfolio approach where anyone who can have a plant-based diet, I think should. Anyone who can adopt a reducitarian diet and reduce as much meat consumption as possible should. We should also look towards new types of food production that might meet people where they're at in terms of uh, deeply ingrained cultural and social um, meat consumption. And so this is why I'm particularly excited about really innovative research being done right now around plant-based meat alternatives and some inspiring startups that are using science, synthetic biology uh, to develop meat from animal cells, not animal bodies. And so I think Ideally, we would move towards a plant-based diet as one solution to the problems that face our food system. The problems that face our food system are multifaceted. There are labor problems. There are economic problems. There are health problems. And there are sustainability problems, um, just to name a few. So there are um, there's lots of opportunities for innovative solutions. And I think, yeah, there's a, there's a, there is a possible future where everyone is a, adopts a plant-based diet. Um, my the, my sort of take on that uh, from a feasibility perspective is, to me, it's a, it's sort of a, a a silly question to look long term in the future and ask if it's possible for everyone to adopt a plant based diet um, because to me, I'm not sure if we have the option. So it's not a matter of of if it will happen, but when it will happen, because at some point. Um, you know, our world is going to be so upended and already is beginning to be upended that we're going to be confronted with a pretty dark reality. And if anything, imagining what that might look like, and this is sort of the value of futures thinking and some of the work that I do at the Institute for the Future, provoking people with some of those images and scenarios of what that might look like. I mean, hell, we have massive water shortages already in South Africa right now, we're in resource wars. And, uh, and it's, it's these types of sort of apocalyptic scenarios may be coming. And the more we think about the long, long term, the better decisions that we can make today to try to be more strategic about ensuring that those problems don't, don't occur. You, you touched on a bit, the, um, sort of cultured meat synthetic biology um which is something i, I mean it, it's fascinating what i what i have read about it i can't pretend to know you know much in much, in much sort of detail but um I, I wonder if maybe we could sort of start by just in basic terms because there, there's there are bound to be plenty of people who who sort of are in the same sort of position what how would you explain cultured meat for somebody who didn't know at all so cultured meat actually has many names. Uh, some people refer to it as cultured meat. Some people refer to it as clean meat. It's been called in vitro meat. The skeptics or naysayers call it lab-grown meat or fake meat. But the basic idea is that cells, mus muscle tissue in particular, um, muscle grows. Cells, cells multiply, they divide and multiply. And that's what they do naturally. 
And they don't need to be inside of a, of a body to do that. So cultured meat takes a harmless biopsy from an animal living or just recently dead and isolates a certain type of cell and puts it into an environment that mimics the body of that animal, mm. feeds it all the nutrients that it needs to grow. And cells do what cells do. They, they naturally divide. And so there's a, a group of people around the world who are using this understanding of biology to grow animal muscle tissue, grow meat outside of the animal in bioreactors to try to create truly real animal-based meat alternatives that are molecularly identical to the animal-based alternative, although ultimately they won't have the hormones that you'd find in your traditional forms of meat, the antibiotics, the fecal contamination. Ultimately, the supply chain will be much more secure. There will be already some life cycle analyses have been done on the environmental impact and the amount of water and the amount of land um, are all drastically smaller. So that's the, the sort of high level idea is growing meat from cells from the bottom up, um, as opposed to um, procuring meat from an animal body from the top down. And part of this is to solve some of these inefficiencies, right? Because we we're all aware that we have such massive feed inputs. We have such massive water requirements to produce animal-based meats and animals are just bad protein factories. They're bad food factories. Um, they're wildly inefficient. And so lots of people in the movement sort of equate this to the horse and buggy is a wildly inefficient, horrible mode of transportation. And Henry Ford came around and developed a much more efficient one. And now other people um, are developing even much more efficient modes of transportation. So that's the, the high level understanding. It's, it's, um, I will say though, however, it is, there's a lot of hype right now and there are some major technological barriers as well as cultural <laughs> that need to be overcome if this is really going to be a, a solution to some of the problems of more traditional forms of animal meat. It sounds almost a bit science fiction, almost like how close to reality is, is that? Is, is this something that is kind of, you know, in uh, scientific papers or is this kind of anywhere even close to a commercial option? Is, is, is this... Where is it in sort of in its development? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> so, so it's certainly in scientific papers. Um, actually, there's a robust literature on culturing tissue, and it has been used primarily in a lot of biomedical research. So there's a long history, and people are actually quite comfortable with growing muscle tissue in vitro in outside of bodies to do a lot of different toxicity tests and we're growing different organs now, and these are all leveraging the same types of processes. So, so we're doing this a lot. Major biomedical companies have well established this protocol. So it's nothing new. The new thing is we've never really used it to grow food. And there are um, a series of startups that are really pushing this forward. One of them is located here in the Bay Area called Memphis Meats. Another one also located in, in San Francisco is called Hampton Creek. And both of them claim that they'll have products out in the market in the next year or two, in 2018 and 2019. Memphis Meats actually just this week got a major investment from Tyson Foods. Tyson, as well as Cargill, people like Bill Gates and Richard Branson have all invested in Memphis Meats. So there are major meat companies, major investors who are moving serious amounts of capital into the space to accelerate its development. So that is a signal of something, I think probably an optimistic signal, but there still are some problems that need to be overcome and we'll see the entry point into the marketplace will likely be a really expensive piece of cultured meat, probably mixed with some plant-based meat as well. So that the, the, the first product might actually only have, five or 10% of cultured meat, something like that. Um, 
So we'll, and it, and it might not be in, in your local grocery store. It will probably be in very high-end restaurants. Uh, so it might actually be uh, quite a long time. And there also isn't really a regulatory system that's been designed to support a strategy to go to market with, with cultured meat. So right now in the United States, the USDA and the FDA are sort of battling over who ought to regulate this. It's a new type of food that doesn't really fit traditional molds. So there are all of, there's, there's a host of problems, but I'm optimistic that many of them will be overcome and that there are a lot of very smart, very passionate people who are driving a lot of this innovation. So, so we'll see. But a lot of people think in the next year or two, people have already been eating it. It exists today. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll see. You said there might be sort of cultural hurdles to get over with that, you know, sort of to convince people that, that, that it's safe and that it's, you know, that it's something that they should be putting into their bodies. Are, are there kind of um, any known risks with it? Is that something that or is, is that all just a sort of is it just a matter of perception and um, there isn't anything known, no known risks yet? There aren't any known risks yet. I think it's sort of an interesting question because there are well-established and well-known risks with meat consumption, and yet we still consume it. Uh, there are well-known risks to lots of things that humans partake in every day. So I'm I'm less concerned about the risks and how well-known they are. Certainly, I will say, and this is an important thing to highlight, from a health perspective, in my opinion, it is always going to be better to have a plant-based diet than consume meat cultured or animal-based, right? So this isn't somehow uh, any healthier than, it's still meat, right? It's still animal tissue. So this is really no, this is no silver bullet. Like I said earlier, it's not going to solve all of our problems. Um, it will be, a, it will be healthier than meat because it won't have a lot of the contamination, fecal matter, and all of that horrible, gross stuff uh, that is in most forms of animal-based meat. So it will be better than its analog, but that doesn't mean that it's good. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, I think the main concern will less be is less around the the types of risks and more around public perception of what it means to have a, a food product that's been grown in a bioreactor somewhere that's been sort of. Uh, I don't know, the, the, the modern farmer in the future probably is going to look a lot less like that straw-hatted uh, field worker and much more like a, a bioengineer or tissue engineer with a PhD. And, a, you know, it's, it's a totally different image that doesn't jive with a lot of our understandings and histories around food. So that tension is probably going to be a lot stronger than whether it's risky for people. It sounds like it's kind of commercially some way off, and even if it, um, you know, does address some of the sustainability and a few of the kind of health health issues, you know, it's 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 not going to be it's not going to be a magic solution to anything. So, the sort of really reducing reducing meat consumption is is probably is the focus. Is the big that's the big win? I think that's the big. I mean, that's one of the big wins. I think that there are also. In the cultured meat space, there are not enough people thinking really systematically about what that future might look like or what a range of possible futures might look like. And there are going to inevitably be a lot of unintended consequences. There'll be a lot of second and third order consequences that we really need to focus on now, especially people who are really passionate about ensuring the long-term viability and success of these types of products. So we need to think much more holistically about what it means to have this new type of food production, what it means for our health, what it means for labor, what it means for our relationship to animals. A lot of these people are wildly passionate about moving beyond the use of animals across our supply chain. And it's going to have a ripple effect. It's going, it, it may further normalize the consumption of flesh. It may drive consumption of other types of animals. It may, um, there's a lot of research, for example, that's really interesting that sort of asks people about their moral concern for animals after eating a type of food. 
And for the people who eat meat and then are asked about their moral concerns for animals, they're much less concerned about animals. They, they, they don't think that animals are worthy of moral patienthood in the same way as people who consume a non-meat product and then are asked the same questions. So there is some sort of link between consuming animal flesh and our broader attitudes towards, towards animals. And if that's the case, and if the whole goal of cultured meat, for example, is to produce a product that is so similar that it's almost indistinguishable. In fact, some people are advocating to just call it meat. You shouldn't call it cultured meat. It's the same thing. Then it might further entrench and normalize a practice that changes our perceptions of the world Food change, the food that we eat changes the way that we think about the world, changes the way that we interact with people. And there's a lot of demonstrated research around violence, around um, your perceptions towards both human and non-human animals. And so, um, in fact, you know, a classic argument against animal abuse that dates back hundreds of years is that if you're abusive to animals, you're more likely to be abusive to humans. And so you should be kind to animals. And so it's, it, it's these types of questions that I don't think we're really asking. And I am wildly passionate about a new form of food production that takes animals out of the equation. But we should think really, really strongly and deeply about what this really means. Yeah, and, and that's fascinating that it might change the way people think, you know, that it, it might uh, sort of stop people thinking about it, perhaps people that sort of agonize over the the ethics and the sort of issues around this if there was something put into the market where they thought well that's all okay now I don't have to think about it anymore that could really that could really have some sort of unintended consequences I imagine yeah I mean to be honest I don't think many people think much about their food anyway so this is part (laughs) of the problem so I, I guess I don't think that there are many people out there agonizing over their the supply chain of their lunch um but but there is something that does happen when we eat food that is more than just our consumption. And we should think more about that. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was um, sort of fish farming. So sort of not to stay on the, stay on production, but it's, it's something that I know that you have looked at and sort of talked about and, and written about as well. And um, one of the one of the things that sort of in that same article, uh, the, the food waste article that I, I mentioned before, you were um i forget the figure i think it's seafood you said was two to 25 times more harmful than plants per sort of per equal weight of of food produced so far less inefficient with resources than meat production but but much more so much more inefficient than than plants the question is i suppose how how sustainable is fish farming compared to traditional just fishing methods maybe we could start there it's not sustainable so it's a great question. I'm so glad you brought it up. And I've done a lot of thinking and, and work on this topic. So I'm deeply concerned about aquaculture. It's one of the fastest growing food production systems in the world. We have totally leveled off the amount of fish that we can fish from the oceans. So the most recent report from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations on world fisheries and aquaculture found that 89.5% of all wild fish stocks are either fully fished or overfished. So we are either taking the maximum amount or more than the maximum amount of fish from all wild fish stocks in the ocean nine-tenths of the time. That is insane. And if you look at the number of, it's actually the, the tonnage of fish that we fish from the oceans, around the, for the past 20 or 30 years, that number has completely leveled off. And so we can't get more fish from the oceans. And yet fish demand and fish consumption has really grown dramatically. So to meet that demand, we've started farming them, farming them all around the world, but primarily in Asia and um, in Asia, primarily in China. And so there's this deep concern that lots of people are looking towards fish and in particular farmed fish as a sustainable solution to food, to some of our problems that, that really plague our food system, particularly some of the problems that plague our animal-based food system. And I think this is rubbish. It is by no means a sustainable alternative. It may be more sustainable than red meat, 
but that by no means should be our metric for sustainability. Um, and so when you actually look at life cycle analyses of various forms of farmed fish production, you have recirculating and non-recirculating aquaculture systems, for example. Some of these systems are wildly carbon intensive. And when you look at these life cycle analyses, some of these modes of production are actually less sustainable than chicken and pork. So when you really look at the carbon footprint of these products, it's by no means clear that fish farming is a sustainable solution to anything. And in fact, when I think people say that, I think we're conflating. Sustainability is at some point a vacuous term. It doesn't mean anything anymore. So when we talk about sustainability, when people think that fish farming is sustainable, I think what they really mean is that fish farming doesn't put the amount of pressure on wild fish stocks that our current forms of fishing the ocean do. And that's a deeper concern about biodiversity and our oceans, ecosystems. That is a great concern, and I'm deeply concerned about that. But when it comes to, for example, the carbon footprint of a food product, fish farming doesn't have, uh, by any means, a light footprint on our earth. So we need to start unpacking conversations about sustainability and really question what are we talking about when we're talking about sustainability? Are we talking about ecosystem resilience? Are we talking about biodiversity? Are we talking about carbon? And then look deeply at systems level life cycle analyses of these products. And when you do all of that, and there's been research that's been done on this, um, the Tillman and Clark study that I think you just referenced about seafood being on average two to, what is it, 55 times? More. 20, 20, 25, I think it was. Two, two to 25. Yeah, two to, two to 25 times more um, carbon intensive. That That is astonishing. And so, yeah, I think we just need to be more clear and thoughtful about these conversations about sustainability and food. And unfortunately, I'm very concerned about the growth of, of fish farming because it is today the fastest growing food of um fastest growing food production system around the world and it's not sustainable you you mentioned something uh, called a 3d ocean farm i suppose first of all what is that but um, also is is that is it a potentially sustainable option yeah it is i think so 3d ocean farming is a fancy term and uh, all that really means is a type of farm in the ocean that uses the entire water column so it's a vertical farming system that uh, has primarily multi-species farming, and not all of them are animals. And in fact, some 3D ocean farms don't have any animals at all. Primarily, you have these systems where there's a floating buoy system, net system, and dropping down from that system through the entire water column are ropes that have different types of seaweeds that are growing on them. Often there are cages at the bottom that are growing bivalves, oysters, mussels, and some of them have fish. The interesting thing about 3D ocean farming is that it has zero inputs. It's a zero input form of farming. So the ocean provides all of the feed. It provides all of the nutrients. So you don't actually have any inputs to the system itself. That's amazing. Um, that's like basically walking down your street and picking a piece of fruit off of a tree that's growing wildly and naturally, and you don't have to do anything to maintain. You don't have to do anything to feed it, to maintain its system. That's an incredibly sustainable uh, system. The other thing is that most of these farms are growing seaweeds and bivalves. These are fantastic foods for a really sustainable future. And they're high yield so because they're able to use the entire water column, you actually don't have to use that much space to grow a lot of food. So it's, it's taking vertical farming, putting it in the ocean, and then farming much more sustainable types of food. So I'm actually wildly optimistic about 3D ocean farming. And there's a great example of one in the, off the coast of Massachusetts. It's called Thimble Island Ocean Farm. And 
Thimble Islands really led a lot of the innovations around this type of food production. So they're amazing. And I think we'll see more of these types of food production systems, especially given the fact that sea level rise is becoming a, a reality that we have to grapple with. And when we look towards the long-term future, we're going to have to find more aquatic forms of food production. Is there any way that uh, someone someone listening, whether sort of just as a, you know, uh, sort of household shop or all kind of, you know, work within kind of catering, sort of buying at a slightly larger level, but is, is there any kind of, any way that they can investigate these this um, the sustainability of, of fish kind of easily at the minute? You know, if it, you can find out, you can see sort of easily whether something is farmed or whether it's, you know, line course or, or what have you, but is there is there any way of sort of anything they should be looking for to see if it's sort of a more sustainable form of farming or, or fishing generally? The first thing that I would suggest looking for is plant-based fish <laughs> alternatives, which, which, I, which it, I admit are still not great, but there are some great innovations going on right now. There's a company out of the Bay Area called New Wave Seafoods, which is developing a red algae-based shrimp product. Shrimp in the United States, at least, is the most consumed f- form of seafood. And this is an amazing product. A couple of amazing female entrepreneurs have really developed a fantastic shrimp alternative. It's being used in Google cafeterias. It's gaining in its distribution. So they're fantastic. So I think there are some really good alternatives. In terms of if you're going to eat seafood, if you're going to eat fish, and you want to understand how to do it more sustainably, there are some third-party certifications. I'm kind of broadly skeptical of them. I worry sometimes that these certifications lull us into a false sense of security about the types of foods that we're eating and those and that impact that we're having on the environment. I think the same thing about food waste conversations, right? I think some of the issue is we feel like we're doing more good in the world with our food choices than we actually are. And um, so I think, yeah, there are, there are some third-party certifications that people can look to, but I'm again, sort of hesitant and skeptical about their ultimate efficacy. And the real question is, what are people trying to do with their food choices? Are they trying to actually eat as sustainably as possible? Are they trying to have a sort of constrained sustainability approach where they, you know, minimize their consumption on some days and feel okay about consuming whatever they want on other days? There are different types of approaches, but um, but in general, my advice would be to just try to avoid it as much as possible. Okay, understood. <laughs> I, would, I would love to try and talk to you about food systems. And obviously, that's a huge topic. And we don't have a huge amount of time left. But I, I know it, it's, you know, something we've kind of referenced a number of times. And I know it's sort of, it's, it's just important to your thinking in general, you know, you, you said it a number of times, you sort of, to sort of to step back to kind of to see to see sort of really what's going on and, and sort of think about these issues at a at a higher level really. I wonder I mean a food system do you do you define it differently to the way that sort of the average person that you talk to, a kind of non-specialist would would understand it? Does that does that mean sort of something very particular to you when you say food systems and sort of systems level thinking? That's a great question. I think when I talk about food systems What I mean is really stepping back and looking at the ways in which we grow, produce, process, distribute, and consume food in a much more holistic perspective. So we often, when we think about food, and this is just natural because we don't see the entire process, but we don't think about the inputs that are used. We don't think about the labor that goes into these products Um, We go into a grocery store and we see this massive abundance on our shelves, but it's very hard to peek behind the curtain and understand all of the complex webs and relationships behind these products. So one thing that I would love to talk to you about and uh, I think might be worth raising and considering when we talk about the food system I've been recently really influenced by someone named Eric Holt-Gimenez. 
And Eric just wrote a book called The Foodie's Guide to Capitalism. And I don't want to go too deep into political economics right now, but this is something that's really influenced the way that I see food as a system. Eric's argument in, in his new book is all about how the problems with the food system are not about necessarily individual consumption or not about people needing to just eat better food or eat more sustainably. The problems with our food system are inevitable byproducts of our problems with capitalism and that the it actually our food system is not broken our food system is working perfectly well doing what it's meant to do exactly exactly and so then it raises all these questions about and this is a great systems level question what are the types of political economies that we've developed what are the values in those economies do we value productivity do we value efficiency over other values like care and if we value efficiency and productivity and profit, then the way that our system operates might actually not have any problems whatsoever. And so we should really, we need to step back and, and ask these types of questions about the systems that produce our food. And, uh, you know, we should think about the commodification of food, the commodification of animals and what that means for our world. And these are sort of systems level questions that I think are particularly urgent in a time where our world seems to be somewhat unraveling. Yeah. I mean, if, if it is a sort of an inherent part of the system in the way that it's set up, then, then sort of a lot of the, a lot of the well-intentioned things that people try to do are almost a, a sort of, they're trying to swim upstream. It seems, you know, it's sort of, it's all not redundant, but it's, it's, kind of almost doomed to failure if, if it's always going to be pushing in that direction. It's Yeah, swimming upstream is a great analogy. I mean, one, one of the, the problems is we might just be in a sinking ship and we can do all we want to start bailing the water out. But as long as there are holes, we're going to keep sinking. And so far, and this is another sort of systems perspective, the rate at which we're sinking and the rate at which we're bailing, if they're equal, we might seem like we're we're okay. And in fact, if we're sinking a little bit faster, but we're still bailing ourselves out, we may think that we have a lot of time, but we can do all we want if we don't see those holes and think really creatively about why they're there and how to fill them. We're sort of rolling a, a big rock up a hill and it's going to keep on falling down on us. So these are the types of questions that I think more people need to be asking more people need to be asking in particular in the food system and all of our conversations about, not all, I'll, I'll temper that, most of our conversations. Unfortunately, a lot of our conversations about sustainability, about waste, about animals are just bailing a lot of water. It's fascinating. Um, we, um, we, we're running out of time, unfortunately, and I'd, uh, I, I would love to kind of really keep going on this, but I, we were, was going to start to just draw it a little bit to a close. And you, you've listened to the show. I tend to just ask a couple of more, more sort of general questions as we, as we sort of wrap things up. So I thought I'd ask, I'd ask you a couple. I thought I'd um, like to ask you: Do you have a, I suppose, what you, a food hero? You know, if 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 I say in the context of food, if I say sort of success, does that make you think of someone in particular? And and if so, why? I love that question. I have a lot of heroes. I have a lot of heroes. I think a couple of people who have really impacted the way that I think and see the food system include James McWilliams is actually is a, is a hero of mine, a sort of unsung hero. He's someone who is a historian. He's an historian down in Texas and has written incredibly eloquently and incredibly thoughtfully about the history of our food system and the values that we bring to it. So he's got an amazing book on local food systems and dispelling a lot of the myths around uh, food miles and eating local. He has documented this just really thoughtful, honest, and eloquent history of his progression of thought around eating meat and eating animals and wrote a book called The Modern Savage all around the ways in which we produce and consume animal bodies. And then most recently, he just published a book called Eating Promiscuously, 
Adventures in the Future of Food. And in that latter book, I think he's such a hero because he he really talks about the idea that there is no one solution to our food system, but part of the problem and one of the approaches that we can develop is eating more promiscuously, having a more diverse diet and broadening the ways in which we consume food. So trying new things, because one of the problems in this maybe perhaps capitalist system is we eat so few plants and animals that we've built in this really, this fragile fragility in our system. So anyway, so James McWilliams, I guess, is, is one of my, my greatest heroes that I don't think enough people know or read. Uh, I'm going to, one more then, just, just so we've got a minute. I, um, yeah. I'll, I'll throw it at you. A big one. How do you hope to be remembered? <laughs> I just hope that I am remembered. Let's, <laughs> let's put it like that. Um, no, no, I think, um, I actually think this is a, a really interesting question and I haven't spent enough time thinking about it. One of the things when we talk about sustainability, I'm deeply concerned about the earth and its inhabitants, which sounds sort of cliche, but I, but I am. And one of the questions that I think is worth posing is why we care so much about being remembered. Uh, it, it amazes me that we have graves and and massive plots of land that are dedicated to individual humans. When you look at the really long-term perspective, we can't do that for everyone. So this like idea that we need to have these legacies um, is is somewhat egotistical and, and, and really self-centered and perhaps is indicative of, of broader issues that are causing some of the problems in our world today. So so maybe actually I'll take that back and maybe I, I just wouldn't like to be remembered. I'd just like to leave the, the world in a better place. And um, so, yeah, I think these are the types of questions that we at the Food Futures Lab at the Institute for the Future ask. And we try to challenge values, question answers, and take a really systems level perspective on all of the research that we do. And um, yeah, I think... <laughs> this has been a terrific and fascinating conversation and I'm so glad that you're asking similar types of questions, Alex. Thank you, Max. I mean, it's been, it's been fascinating, really, genuinely been fascinating to talk to you today. So thank you for your time. Would you like to sort of direct people listening towards anything in particular, towards a, towards a website or towards sort of something to find out more about either you or the Institute or the, you know, the things that we've talked about today? Yeah, absolutely. I think just go to our website. The, it's um, www.iftf.org. It's the Institute for the Future. And we have all types of research and amazing, amazing work uh, online. So, And just write me. I'm always happy to talk to everyone and anyone. And I'm trying to engender a deeper community and practice around asking better questions. So you seem to be someone who's doing that. I want to amplify, enable, empower similar people around the world to do similar things because that's the type of community that we need to solve some of these problems. Absolutely. That's, that's a wonderful place to leave in. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks, Alex.